Leland, you were our most popular speaker in surveys uh, last year, so we had to have you back. Um, you have a take on the Chinese economy that is uh, unmatched uh, with any other source. Obviously, we can't trust the public data uh, uh, from that's coming out of the government, the official stats. But you provide a sort of on-the-ground element of what's happening mm -hmm. uh, with China Page Books. So tell us a little bit about what is the current state of the Chinese economy? Well, I think the most important takeaway from the past year is that China watchers are invariably bipolar. And you have to keep that in mind when you read their analysis, because most of the time, China watchers think China's economy is either going to go great, huge surge, rally coming, or they're in depression and they think a collapse is tomorrow. And we've actually seen that play out throughout 2023. So when Xi Jinping sort of ripped off the COVID zero band-aid at the end of last year, market expectations were for a huge recovery, tons of consumption, total rebound in every, every, every sector of the economy. Really, really, people were really, really excited about the China growth story. Uh, what happened? Not that. So what we saw was uh, what we should have been expecting all along, which was a, uh, a long time to sort of undo the COVID zero administrative state to uh, get COVID and get over it. There are hundreds of millions of people who had to get COVID. And so we saw the economy start to recover into spring. Not great, but a little bit. But by that time, markets had already turned and decided the China growth story, the China recovery story was completely dead got very, very depressed on what was happening in China. So what we were seeing was a sequential recovery throughout 2023. And everything except the property sector was better than last year. But it didn't look like that because expectations were so high coming into the year. So when we got into the summer, we were actually seeing a recovery, a sequential recovery, a terrible recovery, a disappointing recovery, but it was a recovery nonetheless. And markets thought, oh, this is the worst thing we've ever seen. I think China's going to collapse. And so we dealt all summer long with the idea, look at what's happening with shadow banks, look at what's happening with the property sector. It looks like there's no bottom to this, to this madness. And China's collapsing. Now, that was also wrong. So at the beginning of the year, everyone was too optimistic on China. Middle, you know, the end of the summer, everybody was too pessimistic on China. China's not collapsing. But what China's doing is showing a very, very poor recovery off a year of COVID zero lockdowns, which should have shown, you know, had an explosive recovery. So you get a very disappointing recovery going into 2023. The revenge spending that we track in the spring and in the, over the summer, so you know, going out to restaurants, traveling around the country, that is tapering off. So even this very disappointing recovery is already starting to fade into the end of the year. This is why everyone's expecting, oh, Xi Jinping has got to push the panic button. He's got to do big stimulus. Uh, but that's not what his plan is to do. So we've got uh, an economy that's not collapsing, but it's not very good. And I think a lot of people don't know what to make of that. There's been this story of a China miracle or the fact that it was, you know, perpetually would grow indefinitely at these high, you know, high single digit rates uh, to the end of time. That was sort of the story that the media portrayed. Is your case that those days are over with? Yeah, that was a story that, that, that institutions sold us, but was never reality. And the reason we had these high, let's just, just take a look at what we were dealing with for all these years. The reason we had all these high levels of growth is that China would target high levels of growth as its economic priority. So let's say you had an 8% growth target in a particular quarter and you had 4.5% organic growth. What China would do is provide more and more credit to the economy, principally by pushing 
credit into the property sector, and it would gin up. It'd build a bunch of things. It'd, it'd create a bunch of activity, and you'd get the economic numbers to what you predicted. So everyone walked around high-fiving each other because the Chinese never missed their growth target. But what was actually happening over time was an enormous amount of unproductive investment was going into uh, the economy year after year after year in order to hit these growth targets, which were it's completely artificial. And so over time, it became clear and clear and clear to the leadership that this was actually a dangerous path. And what we've seen the last several years is not just the end of China's economic growth model as we know it. I mean, last year we talked a little bit about the fact that China's economic growth model, the one we had for the last 20 years, that is over. High levels of growth, that's over forever. Uh, but what we have right now is actually the leadership bringing us into the new era. They've actually embraced that because I think they see the vulnerability of continuing to feed endless amounts of credit into this machine. It creates a vulnerability with the party. The party wants to lead China for 10, 50, 100 years. You can't keep this economic growth model up. So they're pivoting and they're accepting slower, healthier growth. And I think the best way to understand this is by understanding the social compact that the party has with the people. And essentially for 10, 20, maybe more years, the social contract for the party was, we will provide you high levels of growth and we will make you rich. And that's changed. And the new social contract, because they had to change it, is we will provide, you, we will provide slower, healthier growth, we will make China stronger, and we will, uh, we will broaden out how we provide that wealth. We're going to deal with wealth inequality. We're going to uh, distribute the wealth more equally. So there is already an intentional shift to a slower growth model in China. And that is the absolute foundation of everything that we look at, the lens we look at China. We should keep in mind, the old days are over. This is a new era for, for Chinese economic growth. So Leland, um, for those that don't follow a lot of public policy or public economics, um, give us a little bit of sort of sense on why a path of sort of government-funded stimulus, if you will, or government-funded programs of indefinite growth is a bad thing. What, how do we sort of reconcile that or understand that? Well, I think when you're a young economy and there's a lot of need for investment, it could be a good thing. Uh, the problem was that China continued this model for way too long. And they talked about GDP growth as an end rather than a means to get, to get a stronger economy. So for you know, many, many years, China was a very uh, – was a developing economy. It needed lots of investment. It needed lots of infrastructure. But it got to the point where the, the diversion of credit from productive uses to just build for building's sake in order to hit a growth number that did not have economic significance beyond being a political target, that kept getting worse and worse and worse. And what was happening was you had zombie firms everywhere. You know, you had firms that, that couldn't go bankrupt. You, you, had, you had trust products that couldn't default. Everyone thought that there was no risk in the economy because the government was backstopping everything. There was a drive of credit into, into the sectors like property. They would build all these bridges and roads to nowhere and, and, and other things that didn't have an economic return. Now, you can get away with that for a little while, maybe even for a long while. But at a certain point, the fact that you are pumping credit into non-productive assets means your rate of return is terrible. It means it's going to slow your growth down over time. It's going to do terrible things to a culture of innovation. So they ran with that for a long time. But I think the idea here is that that's over and that has to be over. And so they're shifting to an idea of like, look, high levels of growth, that's our past, not our future. Chinese property market is one of the largest asset classes in the world. 
and has funded a lot of the growth, the public funding, the government funding. Where are we at in terms of that model shifting or where were our structural issues that could cause far more damage into the economy? Yeah, we're at the beginning, not the middle, not the end, but the beginning of China's reckoning with its property sector. And what I mean by that is for many, many years, the property sector has been a tremendous driver of growth. It was one of the assets that everybody, you know, six, they say 70%, 60%, 70% of, of household assets are in property because everyone thought property would go up. It may sound familiar. It happened here. <laughs> but if you look at what's happened with the property sector, the property sector was, this, uh, was, was basically this enormous chunk of the economy, 25% or so of the economy, uh, which was not deriving productive uses. Uh, it, was not, it, was a, it was sort of vacuuming up credit from the rest of the economy in order to hit these growth targets. So at a certain point, and I'd call this 2020 or so, China did a, 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 they veered, they pivoted their strategy and they started to say, look, we are not going to provide endless amounts of credit. We are going to let firms fail. We're going to let investments fail. We're going to let firms go bankrupt. We have to do this because otherwise this is a never ending black hole of credit that we need to divert to places that need it more in the economy. So what started to happen is the property sector was allowed, property firms were allowed to fail. Property sector was allowed to deflate. And, and the idea here was China didn't want the property sector to continue to be the growth driver for the economy. Now, it's important to understand that, that what Xi Jinping could be very aggressive with this, but he could not simply drive the property sector from, say, 25% of the economy to zero. He would have a doom loop. You know, we talked about household assets, so much household assets and property. If you see your prices go down every single month over and over and over forever, you're going to try to sell, panic, you're going to affect the consumption cycle. Nobody's going to want to spend if all their household wealth is, is, is being flushed down the toilet. So it's a very tricky, very tricky path for Xi. And what he's trying to do, the way we've described it, is cull the herd, cull the herd, cull the herd, then ventilate. And what that means is he wants to try to take out the weak firms try to take out a lot of these firms that are zombies, and that's by cutting credit. Cutting credit, tightening conditions, making life quite tough for them. But when the property sector starts getting into a real bad state, cash flow freezes up, uh, contagion looks like it could spread outside the property sector to the wider economy, then they ventilate. They they ease on credit. You can actually see this in China Beige Book credit data. You see tight, 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 easing credit. Tight, 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 easing credit. And what what's, that's essentially doing is saying, we're not going to backstop the sector anymore. We're going to deflate the property bubble, but we're not just going to be totally hands off. We're going to step in when the economy needs it, when, when cash flow freezes up, when it looks like there's a contagion risk to the broader economy, we're going to step in. So it's a cycle, a downward cycle, but of, of, of call the herd, call the herd, call the herd, ventilate. And that's how they're trying to deal with the property sector. But keep in mind, even if they were absolute economic magicians, Nobody can do this without severe problems. Nobody can do this without pessimistic sentiment pervading uh, the economy. So they have a very, very, very tough challenge on their hands. And this is not a two-year plan. This is, this is a decade or more that they're going to have to really be, be, be crunching down on the property sector. So when we think about supply chains, obviously China has been an important, um, uh, massively important contributor to global supply chains. Where are we at in terms of how the... Chinese manufacturing sector uh, is, is sort of dealing with the current sort of economic cycle. Um, what are you seeing in, in terms of what we're hearing on the ground there? Well, I think if 
there was no such thing as geopolitical tensions. We never had zero COVID. Uh, and the Chinese could simply dictate what they want to the rest of the world, which they did for a number of years, that they would be switching more and more to, to, uh, to advanced manufacturing, not giving up lower manufacturing to the extent it could stay in China, but switching more and more and more to be an advanced manufacturing powerhouse. Uh, that's what we've sort of seen Xi's goals be for the last for the last ten years. He wants to move China up up, up the the chain in terms of in terms of uh, advanced manufacturing. The problem is is that you've got a lot of geopolitical tensions that are going to come in the way of this. And so, you know, from a supply chain standpoint, the way we've always sort of looked at this is there's there's maybe four eras in which supply chain thinking has evolved over the course of of a decade or more. You know, it was pre-2016, we used to talk to CEOs, and they would shoo us away. They'd say, look, we know China economic data is not that great. We know there's tensions in the relationship. But what our boards want to do is they want to go into China. They want focus on earnings per share. This is an economic battle for us, and we don't want to hear about the nuances. 2016-ish, there's a shift. I mean, we got into a trade war. Geopolitical tensions rose up. And so a lot of these CEOs would come and say, all right, you have our attention now. We're not necessarily willing to do much about it, but we do see the vulnerabilities now. We do understand that, that the global environment is, and the U.S.-China relationship are undergoing changes. So tell us about it. We're just still not willing to do much about this. And you saw in that say, you know, era, you saw geopolitical tensions get bad. You saw a trade war. We, we got ourselves in a, into the COVID era. And all of a sudden, there was a lot more concern over, over what was happening with supply chains, et cetera. What really broke the dam on this is COVID zero, because you had all these problems. I think a lot of companies thought they could deal with the geopolitical tensions. They thought that this was, you know, had a much longer fuse than they had to be worried about in the, in the near term. But COVID zero showed that if the economy could be shut down and supply chains could be shut down, then every company that has a China presence could have a serious problem. And... That was sort of this period we are in now, which is a recognition that doing nothing on supply chains, that not evaluating where you're getting your stuff from, understanding your vulnerabilities, that has to be a focus of every uh, company beyond simple economics and earnings per share. I think there's one more period to go, and because I, I think this is going to get worse. Right now, you know, we work. I, I relocated from Manhattan to D.C. I'm, I, I'm, I spend a lot of time around policymakers. What's going around? What's going on right now is a desire to address the problem from the government side, address the problem from the corporate side, but not quite too aggressively. Lowest solutions possible. So a little export controls here, a baby investment screening mechanism here, little things that affect the U.S.-China relationship, but but just enough to do a little, but not too much. I think the potentials here as we get towards the end of the decade, if tensions continue to deteriorate between the U.S. and China, where the government will become much more aggressive in terms of what it allows, uh, what it allows to, to be exported out of China, what kind of supply chains are in China. I think there's going to be a continued evolution of the corporate mindset in terms of what we can afford and what we can risk getting from China. Uh, what are our vulnerabilities? I think we're at the very beginning of that stage right now. But I think that we still have uh, a much more difficult path in, in the years ahead. You're, you're making the case, if I'm understanding correct, that U.S. policy, American policy, and perhaps European Western policy overall, um, those decision makers are the ones that's going to actually drive the 
um, moving out of China more so than China, China's own internal actions. Is that, is that, is that your case? I think it's both. Uh, I, and I think COVID zero, which was, of course, the, the lockdown policy, uh, intensive lockdown policy, that was, that was a China decision. I think that is the singular factor that affected this more than anything else. So certainly what China's doing back home affects us dramatically. The fact that the economy is slowing down dramatically. Everyone expected 8% growth forever. It's what the party promised us in the past. That's not going to happen. So people are certainly rethinking China. And expats don't want to live in China. And supply chains are more difficult coming out of China now. Uh, but there's also this other policy part of this, which is becoming a bigger and bigger factor. Uh, a few years ago, we weren't talking about export controls on technology. Now we are. Uh, there is te technological decoupling going on, not broader decoupling, but technological de decoupling, whether it's semiconductors and, 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 and uh, things related to sort of the fourth industrial revolution of advanced technology, you know, anything related to 5G, uh, AI, quantum, biotech, robotics, etc. So there's already a tech sector decoupling, just not a broader decoupling. I think that as tensions increase between the two, you're going to see more and more of the areas that were once either safe or gray area move into potential NAS security areas where the government is going to start cracking down on. And that could happen on the export control side. That can happen on investment flows. There's a lot of worry right now in D.C. that lots of money, both active and passive investment, goes through you know, all kinds of, of vehicles not tracked well and ends up helping the Chinese Communist Party and helps the military. And we don't like that because they could be building missiles with U.S. taxpayer money that could be eventually used against U.S. troops. So there's a rethinking of this going on. I would say what's happening in China's domestic economy is critical. But also what's happening on the, the, the government policy side is becoming more and more of a factor and will be going forward. And, and are they in many ways sort of self-reinforcing? I think so. So yeah. we do something in the U.S., China responds. China does something in China. Chinese government does something. The U.S. responds. And all of a sudden you have this sort of massive amount of a cold war, of sort of a new cold war that's sort of playing out. Right. And that's why I'm very pessimistic on the path between the U.S. and China in terms of maintaining a, a stable relationship. There's a lot of things that are inevitably going to be seen as provocative by one side or the other. And when you see a provocative action, what it, it's, it's very reasonable to say, all right, well, we need to double down with what we're doing. We need to be more protective. Uh, you look at Taiwan right now. There's a real serious chance that the Chinese invade Taiwan at some point before the end of, uh, the, the, end of the decade, or, or giving them a rough timeline. Do we know they're going to do that? Of course not. But in order to deter that, the, the United States is going to be providing more and more weaponry to Taiwan more and, because they want more deterrence. They want to avoid it. But that deterrence will be seen as provocative by the Chinese and will create a cycle. Same thing on export controls. There's a decision that has been made on export controls that giving China access to advanced chips you know, five nanometer, three nanometer, seven nanometer chips uh, to, to fuel their AI, uh, to, to fuel their, 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 both their commercial military drives is a bad idea in case they're a future adversary. But when you put these export controls on China, there has to be a complete recognition that that's going to be seen as provocative. And it will eventually cause a counterreaction and, and, and it will continue to, to have an effect on the relationship in a bad way. So we can be going into this with very open eyes, but that doesn't mean that the relationship won't continue to deteriorate and deteriorate for, for many reasonable uh, reasons. So Leland, who is winning in this whole battle? Like, what other countries are you seeing in terms of movement away from China or at least the U.S. dependencies as it relates to supply chain specifically 
Um, is Vietnam one of those winners? India? But where, where are you seeing sort of the movement and gra uh, sort of gradual uh, uh, realignment of supply chain? Well, uh, Vietnam, certainly. Uh, India, certainly. Mexico, certainly. Um, I think that what's interesting is that a lot of these countries have had, uh, have been very opportunistic in terms of taking advantage of supply chains that are leaving China and saying, here, come over, you know, we'll, we'll be your new home. The problem is each one of them has their own short set of shortcomings. Um, and, you know, you, you, look at, you look at India, India, the promise of India is there. But doing business in, in India makes doing business in China look like a snap. <laughs> you know, uh, Vietnam has, has, has greatly benefited from a move out of China. But a lot of the factories in Vietnam are actually owned by the Chinese. And so there's all kinds of, of, of subtle issues. It, you know, it, it would be beautiful if this was this fluid, clear, non-complicated move from China, supply chains, and they just sort of diversified out, some going to Southeast Asia, some going to India, some going to North America, particularly Mexico. But it's, it's really a lot more difficult than that. And when we see companies like Apple that need very advanced sort of techno technological supply chains, they have been hamstrung by doing this because they can't do it fast enough. They want to move a little bit faster. They realize their vulnerabilities, but they can't just move whole factories yet to all these different places. They're making baby steps. But China was, people were in China for a reason. They're really good at what they did. And so moving out of China is actually a much more thoughtful and deliberative and uh, long-term process than I think people understand. What is your message to CEOs right now in, in terms of how they're thinking about China itself? Is your message that they need to start doing this process of actually disentangling their dependencies on China? By and large, yes. Uh, but the message is not so much, uh, you know, get out of there ASAP. It's understand your vulnerabilities. I mean, the thing that blew us away for years and years is we would go to companies, we'd say, look, you guys are really vulnerable if something bad happens here. And they said, we don't care. Essentially, we don't care. Now, that doesn't mean that every country needs to get out, every company needs to get out of China. This, that's not the message here. The message here is you have to understand the potential that could have the potential bad things that could happen in the future and make sure that you are running your business in a way that leaves you with contingency planning and is not totally focused on relying on China because a lot of things could happen to China. Uh, and I think that one of the main problems we've had, I mean, this is why we're in existence as a company, is that most people who are telling you about the China story are invariably trying to sell you the China story. So they want to tell you that tensions aren't that bad. They want to tell you that you can do business there. They want to tell you that, you know, things are better than they are because they're profiting from that. And that has guided American thinking, particularly in the corporate community, for two decades. And I, I think my message to, to CEOs would be take your blinders off and be honest with yourself. What are our vulnerabilities going forward? And are we doing enough to disentangle ourselves from China considering the threats that we see in the future? Are there any industries right now in China specifically that are actually doing well in this sort of post-COVID recovery? Yeah, we track manufacturing. Certain areas of manufacturing are doing well. Um, you know, the key if you're a foreign investor was always figure out what the government wants. Figure out if, you, if, if, you're, a, if you're a firm that represents something the government doesn't want, good luck with that. <laughs> if you're neutral, maybe you got a shot. If you're doing something that the government is interested in, then hey, life could be good for you in China. So what would fall in that? You know, a lot, Wall Street used to think that finance fell in that category. I, I don't think it did, but in any case, 
there was a desire to do more long-term financial planning, more investment products that were diversified household assets. Uh, but really, if you look at what China's problems are going forward, a lot of them are around demographics. They've got a lot of old people and not enough young people, not enough babies. So going forward, what's going to be big, big money in China is going to be taking care of the elderly. It's going to be generating more babies and services around incentivizing more childbirths. So these are going to be two areas, for instance, that people are going in and they're going to have a very welcome uh, open arms from the government because the, China needs help with those things. If you're doing something that, that the government doesn't like, then the era of, of being welcome over there is, is certainly over. So you have to make sure that you're evaluating what the Chinese government's view of your industry, maybe your company too, but certainly your industry. And if, is that something that Xi Jinping sees as, as helpful, neutral, or potentially uh, hurtful to the Chinese political mission going forward? So we look at a lot of uh, import data into the United States. Um, and obviously, exports out of China is really drives a lot of the import intelligence here. We've seen, um, you know, better sort of fundamentals than perhaps we expected at the start of the year. Is that just a situation where retailers are taking advantage of sort of manufacturing capacity and sort of glut uh, in its economy uh, going and doing deals with manufacturers in China? Yeah, it's very hard. Considering the economy was essentially shut down for most of 2022, it's sort of hard to see, to tell what is, uh, you know, what is real and, and what is sort of a reaction to being bottled up for a year. Um, I think that the, uh, this is why doing economic data in China in 2023 is so difficult. You, you're, you're principally using year-on-year -year data, but you're basing it off what happened during a year where our data showed China was in contraction at least two quarters of the four. The outright and, 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 and severe contraction, one of them. So um, it's, it's sort of hard to see. Some of the trade data, I, I think the takeaway from this, looking broader out, is that China's import data is still way too weak. And their export data has been really strong for a long time. And so uh, the fact that some of the export uh, numbers would ebb is completely understandable. That, you know, China was, has always been a manufacturing powerhouse, but they were an export powerhouse during, COVID, during the COVID era. So that tapering off is completely natural. What you want to see from China, what the world should want to see is, is higher imports, bigger imports getting, you know, going up, 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 more imports reflecting stronger domestic consumption. You don't see that because right now in China, there's a crisis of confidence and for, families are not spending. Corporates are not spending. And so imports are too low. So everyone talks about how China can drive global growth for the world. I think that's a mis mistake. What China needs to do is ramp up its imports. Dry, high, high GDP in China does absolutely nothing for the world. Um, but high imports would, and we just haven't seen that. And what we're seeing structurally in China, what they're incentivizing, are they incentivizing more consumption? I think the answer is no. So they're, they're in, a, they're in a, a pickle right now in terms of domestic consumption issues. They're trying to settle it, but they don't have a good plan to go forward. One thing that has always surprised me as I've sort of dug into this topic, you and I've discussed it before, but also others have, have provided this, is that unlike the United States, or really the whole West, is that we have a a relatively strong support system for folks when the economy is rough. We're happy to give consumer stimulus direct to consumers. Some would say, and rightfully so, that we would weigh too much of that. China, on the other hand, doesn't seem to do that. They don't seem to prioritize consumer 
Um, when things get tough, they don't prioritize providing direct stimulus to consumers. Why is that? That was one of the most discussed topics amongst China watchers throughout COVID. Uh, because you saw what happened in the United States. You could say it's a made too much, but certainly the gut response was, let's just feed, feed credit to households and, 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 and encourage them to spend. They don't do that in China. You're, you're absolutely right. The credit and economy, stimulus and economy goes to the supply side, which has gotten too much credit. And, and that's not the place to put it. So your question is exactly the right one. Why are they not doing more consumer side, household side stimulus? The answer seems to be they don't want to. Why? There's some sort of dogmatic thinking in their mind that that's not what a good Chinese communist does. You think it would be what a good socialist does, so it's very confusing. But there seems to be some sort of political theory resistance towards doing anything on the consumer side. There have been movements from Chinese economists, from Chinese think tanks, from, from, from well-known foreign groups to say, what are you doing, Beijing? Why don't you consider this? This is what you need. And it has been shot down completely. It has never been entertained in any material way. So nobody really knows. The answer seems to be that that is not how they see a proper running of the economy being. So they don't do it. It's shocking to me because someone who thinks of socialism or communism as sort of for the collective good, at least the mm-hmm. theories of communism and socialism, that is clearly not the case if you're not providing direct stimulus. I mean, um, it's, it's just it's somewhat bizarre. And then it... In terms of consumer activity, you talked about the need, and one of the things that's surprising is with all of this development, they don't have a strong sort of consumer market uh, that sort of drives the predominance of their economy. They're largely dependent upon the broader export market, mm-hmm. uh, as well as government stimulus. Um, do, do we see a situation where that changes and shifts? No. Uh, and here's the problem. You know, I talked about how the property sector is being, the bubble being popped. Uh, we can also talk about it, and, and it's a good thing. That's a good thing from a, from, a, from a country management perspective, from a management of the economy perspective. What's also happening is you're seeing an economy that's less reliant on investment. So Chinese leaders promised us 10 years ago that there was going to be less investment-fuel-driven uh, economy, more consumption-driven economy. They have done the investment-driven part. There is less investment going into the economy. The problem is they haven't done anything on the consumption side, and they've talked about it endlessly. It's rhetoric, but they're not actually doing anything to structurally incentivize consumption. Uh, you know, if you want to incentivize consumption, one thing you don't do is have a system that represses households to benefit the state, that represses private sector, the private sector to benefit the state. So this has actually been a pushing against a drive towards greater consumption for years and years and years. Now, if they wanted to change, if Xi Jinping said, you know what, give me some options, let's, let's change this tomorrow, there are things they can do. You know, they could appreciate the currency quite dramatically. You would be putting more purchasing power in the pockets of households to spend. You could transfer state assets to, to households, the private sector. You, know, you could build a better safety net uh, so that folks didn't have to save as much for the future and could spend more in the present. There are all these things that structurally they can do, but they're not doing. And in fact, most of those, they're going in the opposite direction. So this is very important. You see the rhetoric that says, you know, we will be a consumption-driven economy. Uh, you know, we will, be, we will be shifting in that way. We will be encouraging consumers. None of that's happening. None of that has happened. None of it's happening right now. And there is no signal whatsoever that we're going to see that in the future. So I think when you, when you look at the, the structural changes in China's economy, you can give it quite high grades on the aggressiveness in which it's attacked this property sector bloat. You can give it 
solid grades for the way that it is sort of toned down this over-reliance on investment. But you've got to give it a flat F for the drive to do exactly what they say they want to do, which is push the country towards greater domestic consumption. They're not doing anything. It's not happening. And I don't see it happening anytime in the near future. So we have just a minute, um, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't touch on the Taiwan situation. It's the big question that everybody probably has in this room is, what is the situation? You mentioned that it seems, I don't know if the word inevitable, but it seems like it's headed towards a path of of, of an actual military conflict. Can you tell us a little bit about what your current sort of state of the market or state of the world is? Yeah, so we talked a little bit about how the, the, the relationship between the U.S. and China is, is escalatory, maybe for good reasons, but is escalatory, so it increases the chance of conflict later in the, you know, later in the decade or, or down the road. But the other factor we shouldn't ignore is the fact that China's economy is slowing down quite dramatically. You know, if you would have told people this five years, I mean, we were telling people, but very few people wanted to embrace the idea that China's economy was in a long-term structural slowdown five years ago. And not just a, a, a structural slowdown, but a dramatic decline in growth. We are going to keep going down and down and down in the years ahead. This is not going to be baby steps. This is going to be a very significant structural slowdown. We're starting to see this. The data is starting to tell the story. But the question is, what's going on in the minds in Be of, of Beijing, leaders in Beijing? To the extent that they are looking at this and they are changing their view in terms of China's trajectory. So a lot of what planning has been for many, many years has been China's rising, the West is falling. So like Mao Zedong said, we have endless amounts of time to wait this out because every day that goes by, we're going to get stronger and the West is going to get weaker. So we can wait this out. We can wait Taiwan out. We can wait a lot of things out. Well, if this slowdown starts to become more acknowledged, recognized in the minds of Chinese leaders, there's a very good chance they could look at this and say, you know what, we don't have forever. You know, we're, 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 we're at high, high, we're relatively low growth now, we're going down lower. We may be less powerful relative to the United States or the West 10 years from now. So maybe the window for action for some of these things, Taiwan being the most, most uh, potentially problematic, maybe it's shrinking. So we don't know what's in the head of Xi Jinping or his cohorts. What we do know is that as China's economy has more and more problems, there is a possibility that this leads them to see a, instead of an, an, an endless amount of time to be able to accomplish all their goals because China's rising, maybe an understanding China's maybe not rising, maybe China is peaking, maybe this decade, maybe next decade, in which case their window for action might be shrinking and that brings us potentially, but just potentially closer to war. Are you more bullish in the next decade on the U.S. economy than you are on China? Absolutely, I am. Uh, look, at the end of the day, uh, United, United States politicians do everything they can to get in the way. But this is still mostly a market-driven economy. It's still an economy that treasures innovation. More and more, China's walking away from that. They still have great companies, but you see the wings were clipped a few years ago for some of their big tech firms. That's not... You know, China drives some innovation, but it's not open to innovation the same way that this economy is. So uh, am I worried about the U.S. economy? Sure. Am I worried about China's? A lot more. Appreciate your time, Leland. Thank you so much. Thank you, Craig.